Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. This is episode 22, and this is part of a series I'm going to do on sleep. And my first sleep expert is uh, Dr. Amy Bender, and Amy is going to introduce herself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, So currently, I'm the Director of Clinical Sleep Science at Cerebra, which is a sleep technology company focused on bringing in-lab technology into the home and also looking at different ways to measure sleep quality using ORP. Um, And so I've been there for about a year now, and I'm also adjunct assistant professor of kinesiology at University of Calgary. I've been in the sleep field for about 15 years and uh, started off as a sleep technologist. So hooking up patients with electrodes and measuring the stages of their sleep and then transitioned into a master's and PhD in experimental psychology, looking at inter-individual differences in um, response to sleep deprivation. And then I did a postdoc working with Canadian national team athletes. Uh, So I do a lot of work with professional Olympic um, recreational athletes as well and trying to optimize their sleep. So it's pretty safe to say that you are definitely a sleep expert. (laughs) well you know there's always uh room for improvement and i'm always trying to learn um so yeah there's a lot a lot to be learned out there yeah okay speaking of learning i've heard the word adjunct before in terms of a professor what what is an adjunct professor am i even pronounced that right yeah adjunct um it's just someone who's it's not their primary role so they're not a like assistant or associate It's not their full-time role. It's more of um, kind of on the side, collaborating with individuals at the university, giving lectures, but I do have, you know, a full-time role um, at Cerebra, so. Right, that sounds like the ideal position. You kind of have one foot in the academic world, one foot in the business world. And then for the the work you've done already, you know, hooking people up to electrodes and all that kind of stuff. uh, If someone was struggling with their sleep, Uh, Is like a sleep study like that an effective way to go? Or is that like the last resort type of thing? Just because there's a lot of colleges around, you know, the Bay Area and people are, you know, uh, pretty well off where they could afford something like that. But I was just kind of curious. It sounds like the most uh, kind of technical method to get your sleep measured, but is it the most effective? Yes, I would say if someone is really struggling with their sleep, um, you know, typically three days a week for for a few months, um, let's say they're really tired during the day, they may not know why um, they're so tired. Or for example, if they are having troubles falling asleep or staying asleep, um, those would be kind of the instances where we'd want to get it checked out from the sleep professionals. So if you are really struggling with your sleep, it's impacting your daytime functioning. We would want to get a sleep test because the sleep test can look at, depending on the type, um, it can look for different over 90 different sleep disorders. So it can be pretty challenging figuring that out on your own. And so it definitely be recommended to get a get an official sleep test uh through a sleep lab very good yeah so it's comprehensive so you talked about is it cerebra that the company you work with could you just talk about the kind of the current work you do like academically and, and otherwise 
Yeah, yeah. So um, at Cerebro, we're trying to better diagnose and treat different sleep disorders. And we're able to bring, there's basically three different types of sleep tests that you would get. The first one is primarily related to sleep apnea only. So it'd be looking at if you're stopping breathing during the middle of the night. And so that would be a home sleep apnea test or a type three test. Um, but it doesn't include, it's not looking at brainwave activity. It's not looking at if you, let's say, kick your legs in your sleep. Um, you know, so it's missing a certain element. It's more for those who are at risk for sleep apnea. They're stopping breathing during the middle of the night. Their partner witnesses them stopping breathing. Um, but then there's also a type two or level two sleep technology, which is what we do at Cerebras. We're, we're studying the EEG. So we're looking at brainwave activity. We're doing, we're assessing all the different channels that you would get in a sleep lab, but we're doing it in the home. So with our technology, we have um, patients will watch videos in order to figure out how to apply the device. And we're looking at brainwave activity in the frontal on the forehead. So it's not like a technician has to come into the home and apply electrodes in the hair or the scalp, you know, it's all able to be done by the patient themselves by watching these videos or reading the instructions. And so we're able to kind of do a same test that you would get in a lab in the home. Um, and we also have, again, I was mentioning the me metric of sleep quality. So we're able to look at sleep quality on a much more fine grain level versus, um, you know, if you're just looking at stages of sleep, we're actually diving way deeper into the quality of sleep that you're getting. So that's the second type of test. And then the third type of test would be if you go into a sleep laboratory, get, you know, the brainwave measured, the eye movements, the muscle activity, the respiratory effort, which we do as well, but it's in the lab. You have a sleep technolog technologist hooking up the equipment and is looking at your sleep throughout the entire night um, and are able to diagnose for certain sleep disorders. So there there are certain individuals that we would want to be monitored in the lab, um, more like parasomnias if you're walking in your sleep or if you are violently, you know, hitting your partner in your sleep. You know, there's definitely use for that level one in lab technology as well. Oh, so you're kind of offering like a more affordable and less invasive way of testing your sleep for the masses really what it sounds like, is that right? Yes, yes. And we know that um, our sleep isn't quite the same when we're sleeping in a new environment as well. So when you're sleeping in the lab um, or in any new environment in general, whether it be a hotel room or at a friend's house, for example, uh, your brain is actually a little bit more awake than, than what it would normally be if you're in your own home. Um, and also, you know, when you're in a laboratory, you're in the bed by yourself, there's no distractions. Whereas when you're in the home, it's more a realistic environment as well. So you have kind of the comfort of your own home, but also what would really happen when you're in your own home? You know, you may have um, the bed or the dog jumping on the bed or your child waking you up or those kind of things to really capture what your sleep is normally like. Yeah, I had a friend who did a sleep study and she was like, oh, I slept fine. And I was asking her that, you know, how did she sleep? Because I was expecting 
her sleep to be uh, less than what it normally would be. So it sounds like such a much more comfortable way of doing something which could be sort of like anxiety inducing or uncomfortable. Like it's, it's, it's kind of the real nice benefit of technology that you're really taking advantage of it and uh, hopefully improving people's sleep. So what results have you seen, you know, with people that you've worked with already or what could people expect to see with their sleep? Let's say someone has sleep apnea or some type of insomnia and they, they come to work mm -hmm. with cerebral. Yeah, um, well, I think number one, where we've seen examples where we have three different patients and they all have the same kind of distribution of sleep stages. So they're getting around 50% stage two, 20% uh, stage three, 25% REM, 5% stage one. Um, and so these three patients are very similar when we're looking at the sleep stages. But when we break it down based on our technology, looking at sleep quality using odds ratio product or ORP, we see a much different picture. And so we're able to explain better some of the clinical symptoms that are going on in these individuals. So we'll see, okay, yeah, it looks like maybe this person is actually potentially sleep deprived. We're seeing more of those deeper states of sleep broken down more than just, you know, a stage three deep sleep type of situation. So we're able to see kind of a more fine grained picture, fine grained analysis of what's going on with someone's sleep. And that's then able to be linked to some of these clinical symptoms as well. Um, currently, you know, with insomnia, there is no objective measure, objective test of insomnia. You would report your symptoms to your doctor and they would say, okay, yeah, based on what you're telling me, it looks like you do have insomnia. They may do some sleep diaries where you're, you know, writing down when you go to bed, when you wake up. Um, but there's no really objective element of that insomnia. And so what we're trying to do, are, are we seeing different biomarkers in the brainwave activity in these individuals reporting insomnia? So for example, are they have a heightened state of alertness with their brainwave activity? So we're really excited to be able to you know, better analyze their sleep currently and then ultimately provide better treatment recommendations based on this new information, you know, provide the doctor with new information that they can make better treatment recommendations. Great. Yeah. So basically if you know what's at fault, then you can, you can treat that as opposed to having some generic approach that wouldn't be specific to an individual. Yeah. So for me, my sleep, I sleep like six hours, 20 minutes. My Fitbit tells me <laughs> so I don't know how accurate that is obviously not as accurate as your company but I would like to sleep more you know I know the recommendation is like seven to eight hours we'll say right and I can't you know I'll try a few different things but I can't sleep more and I, I saw that one of the diagnostic criteria for insomnia was that you can't sleep as much as you'd like so potentially I could have like does insomnia exist on a spectrum basically could I have like mild insomnia because I can't sleep seven hours you know I always wake up early at the same time, even if I go to sleep earlier, you know, Does that makes sense. Yeah, no, there is different levels of severity of insomnia, um, depending on the symptoms. So, you know, you meet the, you meet the requirement based on what you're reporting, but obviously there may be people who have had it for 10 years up to this point, 
and it's more of a potentially more of a chronic issue. Um, so there is a degree of, you know, variability in the symptoms that are being reported. I think the key here is, is it impacting your daily living, your daytime functioning, those kind of things. And so maybe for you, you may be a short sleeper where six and a half hours of sleep is enough. Now I will say that's very, very rare. So less than 1% of the population. So a lot of people come in and say, oh, I'm just a short sleeper. But in reality, you know, they have to get a lot of coffee to get them through the day, or they may have memory impairments, or they may have health, health impact. Um, so it is pretty rare. But I think the key is how is that sleep problem impacting your daily living and your daytime functioning. And so if it's not, then you may not even, you know, get it checked out by a sleep professional if it's not really impacting how you do your day-to-day -day activities. Yeah. I'll think about it more. Maybe I'll contact you after this and see what we can do, you know. <laughs> so what is the kind of, do you know any the statistics around like the average adult sleep? Like the recommendation is seven to eight hours, but like how many adults actually meet that or, you know, how common are sleep uh, issues? Mm -hmm. It's typically about 25% of adults, maybe even higher, um, have a sleep problem. So either related to a sleep disorder or they're just constantly sleep deprived. Um, so yeah, I would say it, it is, it is a problem, especially when it comes to sleep deprivation, you know, we see um, even more than that, probably about a third of people aren't meeting the requirement of seven to nine hours of sleep, depending on the association that's making the recommendation. So seven to eight, seven to nine, that minimum of seven hours, I will say. Um, so, so it, it is, it can be problematic. Um, and, and I, I believe it's getting better. I think with more awareness about sleep and potentially even wearables, um, which you mentioned your Fitbit is, is telling you that um, typically the wearables are pretty, pretty effective at telling you how much sleep you're getting. Um, but it's more when they try and break it down based on sleep stages, where that's where we start to see issues with that technology. And I know it's, it is getting better, but um, the, the wearables do bring sleep into the forefront and it opens the conversation um, for people at tracking their sleep. But again, I think, yeah, the hope is to kind of go beyond sleep stages and to use more advanced technologies. Yeah, like the company you work with, get that into every home in America <laughs> potentially. So just speaking of sleep and not sleeping enough, um, if people don't sleep enough, you, you had a video uh, you know, on what does sleep have to do with your mental health? So what effect would undersleeping have on your mental health potentially? Well, when we look at mental health issues, in about 90 to 95% of people with mental health problems also have a sleep disturbance related to that. Um, it is, it's hard to tell kind of the chicken or the egg, which came first, like is, is depression causing you to sleep more, for example, versus 
Was there a sleep disturbance that then caused the mental health problem? So it, it can go both ways, um, but it is pretty apparent that there are uh, tons of sleep disturbances occurring with mental health issues. And in my previous role, um, so I was a research scientist at a, a counseling center, and that was one of the things that we were trying to explore is how can we create sleep interventions to improve mental health? Um, and, and that is certainly a very exciting area of research um, to go into. And I think it can help in those situations. If, if someone has an underlying sleep disorder, we do see a higher prevalence of mental health issues occurring. And when we can treat that sleep disorder, we see an improvement in those mental health symptoms. Um, so it's certainly, yeah, definitely an area that we want to protect and, and sleep is something we want to prioritize for better mental health as well as better physical health. Yeah, very good. I asked that question because I noticed over the holidays, I slept more, like 30 minutes more. So I went from like six and a half hours to seven and my mood was, you know, way better. So mm. kind of like backtracking a little bit, like how important is sleep really? You know, if someone is like, I don't care about sleep, I don't have time for sleep or, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead or they're just, they're not sold on it. You know, they're like, I get six hours or five hours. That's enough for me. I have my coffee. I'm fine. Why should someone take their sleep more seriously and um, outside of the mental health benefits? Or do you want to touch on those as well? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we do see with sleep disorders as well as not prioritizing sleep. So sleep deprivation, we see an increase in risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's disease, you know, all of these different impacts on health. And I think an example would be, for example, daylight saving time. So we you know, we spring the clock ahead in the spring, we lose an hour of sleep, and we actually see an increase the Monday after um, daylight saving time. We see, you know, an increase in heart attacks occurring, we see an increase in accidents, we see increase in suicides um, related to that hour of lost sleep, but also kind of the misalignment with our circadian rhythm. So we have, you know, our rhythms are constantly going at a kind of a 24 hour rate. And then we introduce this one hour difference and, you know, it, it, it can wreak havoc. Um, now the one hour isn't a big deal for most people. Um, but it's kind of that chronic sleep deprivation leading into that hour is why we see all these like exacerbated, um, symptoms. So I think even just that experiment that we do once a year um, can can really show us the impact of even just an hour and and what that can do for our health yeah like someone could be on the edge of their health we'll say and then that disruption could put them over the edge kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back you know after under sleeping for maybe 10 years so uh another piece of work you had was uh sleep on the athletes so then uh, expert recommendations. Could you speak a little bit about that? So uh, I would extend this to say that anyone who's like regularly active uh, or trying to improve their health, this could apply to them also, not just an athlete, but maybe you can correct me there. 
Yes, a lot of my uh, strategies are are geared towards everyone. Like everyone could benefit from them. Um, when when I'm working with an athlete, you know, one of the important things would be to have a good pre sleep routine, for example, because they may be doing a late training session, they need to kind of relax their brain and their body. And so they need a system to, to activate that relaxation system in order to fall asleep in, in a, in a proper, you know, time frame. So that would be something that anyone could use would be to try and um, implement a pre-sleep routine. So having, putting away the electronic devices, for example, about an hour before bedtime, taking a warm bath or shower, which has been shown to decrease the amount of time it takes you to fall asleep, even writing a to-do list. So trying to, um, you know, right before bedtime, writing everything you need to do the next day to offload a lot of those thoughts off of your mind and put them on paper, even, you know, doing some breathing techniques. So for example, the four, seven, eight breathing, breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven seconds, breathe out for eight seconds and repeat that four times would be a breathing technique you can implement into your pre-sleep routine. And then also uh, a cognitive technique as well. So I like the cognitive shuffle where you think of a word such as bedtime, you imagine all the objects that you can starting with B. So ball, baby, bus, banana, move on to the next letter, E, eagle, egg, ear. And by the time you get to the end of the word, you'll hopefully be sound asleep. So really trying to prepare your mind and your body for, for sleep, which is then going to improve your sleep quality throughout the night. Um, would be, would be one of the strategies. Um, another strategy could be potentially napping. So I recommend this a lot in athletes because they may not have enough opportunity of nighttime sleep to get enough before they have to wake up for an early training. And even in those athletes who do get a normal amount of sleep, I still recommend the nap because the naps, even a 10 to 15 to 20 minute nap is going to increase your productivity. It's going to increase your alertness. It's going to boost your mood. Um, you know, so it's been shown to be very beneficial for your performance. Um, and so personally myself, even if like, if I've gotten a poor night's sleep, I'll try and automatically schedule in a nap for the following day. Um, in order to try and make up for some of that lost nighttime sleep, but also, you know, if I don't get enough sleep, I can be a little bit cranky. So having this little short little nap is going to, um, boost my mood, for example. Um, so napping a good pre-sleep routine. Um, if you're banking sleep is another strategy for athletes, especially, but I think it could be utilized in just the general population, um, so that's where you try and get more sleep leading into an important event. Uh, so let's say you're a student and you're approaching your finals, you know, getting more sleep leading into that event is going to help you perform better during that event. Um, or if you're, let's say a night shift worker and you're working three nights a week, um, can you get a little bit more sleep leading into that first night shift, which is going to help you perform better during that kind of sleep deprivation state that you'll be in? Um, those are those. Yeah, those three strategies um, 
or something I'd recommend for anyone. If you want me to add another one, <laughs> I can. I would say um, regulating your light activity. So getting lots of light in the morning outside really sends a signal to our brain to wake up. Um, it sets our rhythms for the day and actually improves our sleep quality at night. And typically, you know, I'm in my office right now, I'm kind of in a basement, I have one little window. Um, I mean, I feel like I have pretty bright lights, but when I measure my light level activities in my office, you know, I'm at about a hundred lux, which isn't, isn't that bright compared to when I go outside on even a cloudy day, you know, we're talking about maybe even up to 10,000 lux. So it's getting that light outside is going to help, especially in the morning is going to help set our circadian rhythms for the day and has been shown to actually improve sleep quality at night. And then at night doing the opposite. So, um, you know, the sun is setting, we wouldn't naturally be getting a lot of artificial light um, if we were camping, for example, or back back in the day. Um, so limiting your light exposure at night is also important to try and dim the lights as you approach bedtime, put away those electronic devices, which will be helpful for overall sleep quality. Brilliant. Yeah, the best tip that I could think of was to set an alarm to get ready for bed, but that has blown everything that I had out of the water. That was great. And you also answered why light is so important. So for people who drink coffee, how much of an effect does coffee have on their sleep? Do you recommend it, you know, for people you work with? Or um, for example, in my own case, when, when I stopped drinking coffee altogether, I noticed like it was, it was kind of the difference was like night and day. I really felt like, I could tell when my body was actually tired and I could naturally wake up. Um, but then of course it does give you like a little bit of a, a kind of a, a jolt to wake up. So it's like, um, yeah. What are your thoughts around coffee? What do you advise for people to improve their sleep? Yeah, I think, I think it, the current way that we drink coffee is more automatic. So it's kind of like, if I don't have coffee, I'm going to be tired. I'm going to be groggy. I'm going to be sleepy. Um, so it's, it's like a habit that's really hard to break, obviously. Um, but I think that coffee should, or caffeine should be used more strategically. Um, so myself, for example, I, I felt the same exact way. I, you know, I was in grad school, I was drinking lots of coffee. In general, I would say I was pretty sensitive to caffeine, but just being in grad school, I kind of built a tolerance for that. And it wasn't until my third child was uh, six months old that I'm like, you know what, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and get rid of coffee. So I went off coffee. It was horrible for those first two weeks. I was very sleepy, tired during the day. You know, I would uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go cold Turkey. I would have like maybe a green tea or something if I was feeling tired, but, um, the exact same thing happened to me. I felt as soon as, you know, that two week was over and I was like, it was officially out of my system. I felt like I was sleeping so much better. You know, I wasn't waking up just the overall quality improved. Um, and we're actually doing a little case study with, um, one of our partners or colleagues, he's um, going to be testing the whole coffee scenario. And this is, you know, just an N of one, but 
right now we're just um, trying to see what's going to happen. And so he's going to wear our technology in his home um, for two weeks. He's going to just drink coffee normally for two weeks. He's going to go off coffee. And then for two weeks, we're going to study his sleep when he's off coffee. So we're going to study his sleep for six weeks straight, if he can make it through that. And we will, it'll be interesting to see um, the impact of what happens, well, what happens when he's drinking coffee normally, how does that process change when he's going off coffee? And then what does it look like in the optimal, potentially optimal scenario where he's not using caffeine anymore? And so we're really excited to be able to explore uh, his specific changes in sleep quality that we wouldn't necessarily see if we were, you know, wearing an aura ring, for example, or a Fitbit. Um, and, and it just wouldn't be possible to do that in the lab. So that's why we're really ex excited about exploring those kind of different questions and opportunities. And we previously ran a study and we're looking at analyzing this data where we had 20 participants wear our technology for 20 nights across 25 days. Um, and we studied, you know, how often they're drinking caffeine, how often were they exercising close to bedtime? Were they eating close to bedtime? And um, looking at objectively what's going on as they're doing these different um, lifestyle activities. And so we're super pumped to study those results as well. And how can these different lifestyle factors really impact sleep quality? Um, so we'll be definitely looking at those results and to figure out, are there certain patterns um, for certain individuals that they might want to avoid? And we'll be using that to inform our own um, strategy for a digital therapeutic and a micro version of our EEG device. Very good. Yeah, I'd love to see the results of that because um, I was just thinking now I should probably stop drinking coffee myself to see the difference and then try and stick with that. And um, just to be clear on, on the protocol, so it's two weeks with coffee and the device, two weeks without coffee and the device, and then another two weeks or? Yeah, and then so that middle two weeks is kind of the coffee may still be in the system. Um, there may be like sleep disturbances related to withdrawal, for example. I mean, it's not likely, but we do wanna look at what's going on um, during that withdrawal period. And then the final two weeks with the device, we'll be looking at um, what would happen if you're not using caffeine or coffee. Got it. So the second two weeks is like a washout period. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think there, there will be some very, very interesting results from that. And I'm very excited to see what will come of that because we think, oh, coffee is so pervasive. Like I remember in college, I was like doing 30 days, no coffee. And then my lecture at the time just randomly happens to go, okay, we're taking a coffee break. And I'm like, why do we need a coffee break? You know, it's like late <laughs> enough in the afternoon, like why do we need coffee? And I was just like, oh, because it's become so uh, ingrained in the culture. You know, coffee is, I think it's the most widely consumed drug in the world. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's actually pretty hard not to drink coffee, but yeah. 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 Me, me personally, um, I, I love the taste of coffee. I love the ritual. I love the, you know, hotness of that drink. Um, so I, I just switched to decaf and 
So this morning, um, you know, I made a decaf Americana or Americano, um, and it was delicious. And, and, you know, there's not, doesn't go to say that if, for example, if I get, well, if I get a really poor night's sleep, I sleep, I actually avoid coffee because I don't want that hyper arousal and affect my ability to fall asleep that night. But for example, if I was doing a night shift or something, I would use the caffeine strategically, or if I'm doing a long road trip, you know, I would want to be alert while I'm driving. So there's no saying that I wouldn't use it in those instances. Um, there are, there is utility for, you know, being alert during certain times. It's just not something that I try and automatically do. Yeah. Yeah. Like caffeine is an ergogenic aid. It improves performance. So to completely cut it out would be kind of having a black and white approach to it, which would be ineffective and yeah, using them strategically and the decaf sounds very useful and uh, napping as well. Just to go back on that, I remember hearing that LeBron James sleeps like 10 hours a day. So he'll like sleep, get up, eat and like maybe work out and go back to sleep or something. But basically, mm -hmm. you know, I know that's an N equals one. But um, if we don't, if, if a lot of people don't sleep enough already, it's worth trying these little tactics you've given to sleep a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so just one of your other uh, bits of work was uh, sleep continuity is positively correlated with sleep duration. Can you talk about uh, sleep continuity and, and the findings from that study? Yeah. Um, so what we see in the research is um, with sleep continuity, you know, actually, <laughs> maybe we don't want to go there. I, uh, it was that, that was one of my studies. Yeah, that was one that you were named on. Um, yeah, I don't. So maybe you weren't like a lead researcher. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember. Like that was probably 10 years ago. Um, 2016, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I don't really and probably shouldn't talk about that study, which is embarrassing because it's my own. Uh, I'm one of the authors, but, um, but we no could problem. talk about sleep consistency, if you want, the importance of having a consistent sleep schedule. Yeah, or, so I know we only have three minutes left, but or three minutes or so. So I was just, I have one question, which is some of the misconceptions that people you work with generally have. So we can go with sleep consistency or misconceptions, whichever, whichever you prefer. Oh, no, go ahead. Whatever you want to ask. Yeah, so the, the question then, what are some of the most common misconceptions people you work with generally have? So what do you see people having commonly that they could correct kind of like the low hanging fruit in terms of their beliefs around sleep mm -hmm. or ideas or, or strategies or anything that is just not serving their best sleep? Yes, I would say the first one is the, the thinking that you can get by on less sleep. Um, and so what, so what we see in the research is with sleep deprivation, we see decrements in performance, but the subject themselves are actually reporting that they're doing fine. So 
it's, there's a disconnect between how you're actually performing and how you think you're performing. And so in the, in a lot of instances where people think, oh, I'm good on five hours, I'm good on six hours. In reality, their performance is being impacted by that. And it has to do with um, kind of the prefrontal decision-making area of the brain is deactivated when we are sleep deprived. Um, so it is related to that. We don't have quite as good decision-making. We may take more risks when we're sleep deprived and, um, you know, primarily related to the deactivation of that prefrontal cortex. Um, and so that is a misconception that I see is people think they're doing great when they're sleep deprived, when in reality, their performance, if we were to look at it objectively would show a much different picture. Another misconception would be, um, you know, like snoring is funny, um, it's, it's cute, you know, in children or whatever, but it can be the sign of uh, sleep apnea. So about 50% of snorers uh, also have sleep apnea. And so they're stopping breathing during the middle of the night. Their oxygen is decreased during the middle of the night, you know, and it can be a very, um, traumatic or a very uh, severe type of disorder. So that would be another misconception. Um, I'm trying to think, have you heard any other myths that I could address? We're actually in one of our next seminars, we're gonna, um, we pulled our employees and we're gonna, we asked them what kind of myths that they want busted. Um, and so we're gonna try and address those myths, but is there another one maybe that comes to mind for you? I have one that comes to mind, but just definitely touching on the, like ignorance is, is not bliss with, with your performance. So like uh, you would have, you would literally have absolutely no idea how much worse your performance is. And uh, that's really scary, you know? So uh, yeah, just, you can't neglect your sleep. But one that I had with a client was that he was like not sleeping well. And he was like, oh, I have to have noise on the background. So he would leave Netflix on all night. Oh. And I was just like, okay like you know you, you got the light and you got the noise kind of pollution almost and it's just like yeah you know some people think they need noise or something I'm not sure like is it necessarily a misconception but just kind of having the screen time basically is what I'm getting at it's like it's a I think it's a chronic problem you know but um it's definitely something that we could easily you know work on by turning the screens off yes um Noise, noise is a tricky one. I mean, I think white noise can be useful if you're in a very noisy environment. Um, but if you can get away with potentially earplugs instead, that would probably be a more preferred method. Because uh, when we're asleep, we actually are listening, you know, our brain is listening for noises in our environment. And so you may be at a more heightened state of alertness, if you have some um, variable noise, for example, with uh, Netflix going on, a show playing, that kind of thing. Um, there may be actually, it may be hurting your sleep quality by having that noise on. And so um, more like earplugs would probably be a better, better uh, recommendation in that instance. Yeah, I think maybe it might help like time to fall asleep, but to keep you asleep and get a deep sleep, it probably would interrupt that, I guess. But uh, I know you're tight for time, Amy. So thanks very much for all the wisdom you've, you've uh, given so far. Is there anything we didn't touch on or any links or anything you want to talk about before we wrap up? 
Well, I mean, I think people can um, catch me on social media. I'm on uh, Twitter and Instagram at sleep for sport. I also have a website sleepintowin.com. Um, so you can kind of check out those, those avenues if you want to learn more about me or keep, keep up to date on my work. Yeah, you have a lot of good information out there. That's how I came across you. So thanks very much. Thanks for having me.